Growing up the child of a Disney fan, I grew up watching Fantasia. How Disney created a cartoon narrative to go along with popular classical orchestrations always fascinated me. One of those pieces always stood out to me, The Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. The silky jazz of the clarinet as it slowly rose up the scale to a soar high in the upper register gives me goosebumps to this day. Hi there, and welcome to episode 34 of 8 Minutes of Music History. I'm Rena Goki, and today we are going to be diving into a modern music masterpiece, Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. Labeled as orchestral jazz, the Rhapsody in Blue was unlike any orchestration heard up to that point. In the early 1920s, band leader Paul Whiteman just came off a successful performance series of classical jazz with jazz vocalist Eva Gauthier in New York City. After having heard George Gershwin's jazz opera Blue Monday, Whiteman contacted the composer and asked him to write a jazz orchestration to celebrate the birth date of Abraham Lincoln. Originally, Gershwin declined Whiteman's request, as he did not feel that he had enough time to complete such an extensive composition in such a short period of time. Weeks later, Gershwin's brother, Ira, showed him a newspaper article titled, What is American Music? Wherein Paul Whiteman stated that George Gershwin was already at work on a jazz concerto for Whiteman's concert. Understandably confused by the article, Gershwin called Whiteman to straighten out his involvement in the concert. Whiteman informed him that the composer's rival, Vincent Lopez, had offered to write the experimental composition, and it was at that moment Gershwin decided to write the piece. Gershwin only had five weeks to write this grand new jazz concerto. It was on a train ride to Boston that the theme finally came to him. In an interview with Isaac Goldberg in 1931, the composer said, It was on the train with its steely rhythms, its rattle bang, that is so often so stimulating to a composer. I frequently hear music in the very heart of the noise. And there I suddenly heard, and even saw on the paper, the complete construction of the Rhapsody, from beginning to end. No new themes came to me, but I worked on the thematic material already in my mind and tried to conceive the composition as a whole. I heard it as a sort of musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot and of our unduplicated national pep, of our metropolitan madness. By the time I reached Boston, I had a definite plot of the piece, as distinguished from its actual substance. When Gershwin wrote The Rhapsody in Blue, he did not have a good deal of orchestration composition under his belt, so it was Paul Whiteman's chief arranger, Ferd Grove, that wrote out all the individual parts. Many say that it was Grove's arranging that made the piece as popular as it is. Grove knew the strengths within Whiteman's 23-piece jazz orchestra, and arranged the Rhapsody just for Whiteman's orchestra. It was not until 1942 that Grove rearranged it for a full symphony, adding string parts, which there were none, auxiliary clarinets, French horns, and a banjo, just to name a few. Years later, George Gershwin composed versions of the Rhapsody for solo piano or a piano duet. If you hear it performed today, you will likely hear no banjo at all and less saxophone than was used in the original. This concert premiere was called an experiment in modern music and took place on February 12, 1924. 
As Whiteman and Gershwin were well-known in the music world, this concert was very much anticipated, and the packed audience consisted of vaudevillians, concert managers come to have a look at the novelty, tin pan alleyites, composers, symphony and opera stars, flappers, cake eaters, and all mixed up higgledy-piggledy. Some notable attendees from the music world were John Philip Sousa, Igor Stravinsky, and Leopold Stokowski. When the performance began, the concert hall air circulation system started to malfunction. So through the first three or four pieces, the audience were becoming irritated and restless, with some even getting up to leave the venue. It was then that George Gershman walked out on stage and sat at the piano. He cued the clarinet soloist, and the entire hall quieted as the haunting, lengthy glissando began. Now let's start talking about the structure of the piece. Many have said that Rhapsody in Blue is a musical portrait of New York City, so as we go along, I'll point out the different aspects of the piece that show this. First off, what is a Rhapsody? What makes it different from a standard concerto? A Rhapsody is a one long extended movement, rather than being broken up into separate movements or sections of a musical suite. As you just heard, the piece opens with a wailing clarinet, leading into the rest of the winds to carry along the melody. The whole orchestra cues in alongside the piano to play a motif. This motif is heard throughout the entire piece, from slowly and quietly to very grand. After this, the piano has a short solo, after which the whole orchestra cues in to play a grand fanfare. There's that motif again. A few seconds later, the trombones play a blaring variation on the motif and lead into flowing trumpets. In Disney's Fantasia 2000, this was represented as people moving along on a New York subway system. The flowing movement of the quick trumpets make it seem like the piece is moving along on the fast New York subway. This is a major part of this New York portrait. A bit later, the piece moves back into a long piano solo, taking up the entire middle of the piece. Fun fact is that when this piece was originally performed with Gershwin at the piano, he completely improvised this entire section, cueing in the orchestra when the time came. He later put it onto paper, and since has become one of the most improvised parts of this piece, as the pianist will alter the speed at different parts to make it unique. 
This is quite similar to a style used in Mozart's violin concertos, where the group would play, a piano would improvise for about four minutes, and then the group finished the piece off. Moving on, let's skip to the part where the orchestra joins back in. This melodic and pronounced change in the music is represented by an ice skating rink in Fantasia 2000. The characters of the animation dance around, showing the viewers what the characters want whilst also majestically figure skating. After this, there's another short piano solo, and then we're brought back with the orchestra to finish the piece off. This is bouncy and fast, with the brass playing big crescendos, or growing volume in the notes. After this, the orchestra dramatically plays a big build-up to the grand fall. The piano grandly falls, with the brass playing foghorn-like blats as the strings play in between. The piano then plays a variation on the motif. The orchestra comes in to finish the piece off, with the piano playing majestic themes before the motif is played a final time. This piece is extremely flexible. As the most notable trait of jazz is improvisation, parts of the piece vary in speed and style across different recordings, most notably in the middle piano solo. Due to this flexibility, this piece can be played in 11 minutes, or even as long as 17 minutes. Throughout this episode, I've used two different recordings, one of which was the Slavic National Philharmonic Orchestra with Libor Pesek at the piano, and the second being the 1976 New York Philharmonic with Leonard Bernstein at the piano. Let's hear a comparison of two clips of the same section, but one from each recording. <laughs> clip using the Slavic National Philharmonic Orchestra recording is faster than the second one, which is the New York Philharmonic recording. The second clip is also much more dramatic, going slightly slower and drawing out the foghorn-like blats played by the brass. 
On top of this, a lot more instruments are used in the second clip. The first one uses a few brass instruments with some strings, while the second one uses many more strings and louder brass. Interestingly, the first recording of Rhapsody in Blue had to fit onto the single side of a 1920s record, meaning it had to be squished to an unbearably fast 9 minutes, and therefore was performed at a much quicker pace than usual, giving the whole piece a feeling of being rushed. Although some of the evening's reviewers thought poorly of this original Rhapsody, the audience could not stop raving. This performance was spoken about for days. Though, back then, music criticism was much more like journalism than it is now, because if you missed a concert, there was no way for you to hear it again in its purest form. So, it got a bad rep originally, but after being revived many times since the 20s, the piece's glory has been officially recognized. It has been said that the Rhapsody in Blue is a musical portrait of New York City, which is likely why Walt Disney Studios chose that city as the location for the Fantasian 2000 animation of the piece. They took the tight harmonies, train-like movement, and sultry runs that George Gershwin wrote and brought it to life within the hustle and bustle of America's liveliest city. I hope you enjoyed this episode of 8 Minutes of Music History. You can find my sources in the description. Have a great day.